I understand that there's some sort of sporting contest this afternoon, sports ball, something like that. I'm already out of my depth, right? There are guys who are rolling their eyes at me. I stink at sports analogies. But it's the day that I assume anyone who is on any of those teams has been dreaming about since the first time they touched a football. They've literally trained, worked their whole lives to get to this moment. It is their singular focus. Nothing else is on the calendar for today. Nothing is more important. This is what they are doing today. Right now at this moment, there are men who are psyching themselves up to make themselves confident that they can do it, that they can win. And I wonder, where are they placing this hope? Where are they placing this faith, really, for lack of a better word? In their own abilities? I'm sure there's some of that. In, in the coaches, in their, the strategy, and in, in whatever. And inevitably, unfortunately, someone will lose today, right? I'm always struck by the contrast of those shots where you have the one side, you have the winning team, and they're celebrating, and then sure enough, they're going to cut back to the other team, right? And you're going to see the look of despair on, on their faces. Inevitably, there's going to be a winner, and there's going to be a loser today. And as Christians, we can feel some of that. And some of those days we feel like we're doing okay. Other days we feel like we're not doing so well. We feel maybe defeated. And in those moments, where is our faith placed? And how do you pick yourself back up again? How does that team pick themselves back up again? Where's the level of faith again that the winning team really drew upon in order to get the job done? What difference does that make for us as Christians Where is our faith? And it makes all the difference in the world. And so Matthew is going to teach us a lot about faith today in the story, of course, of a boy that is healed, a desperate father in the midst of another tense situation. Last week, we um, looked at the famous account of the transfiguration, Jesus displaying his glory Confirming once again his status as God in the flesh, the glory of God seen in the face of Jesus Christ, who also mediates the presence of God. Our role in that, we said, to show God's glory ourselves. How? By being more and more transformed, degree by degree, bit by bit, into the image of Jesus Christ in our own transformation, to do the hard work of denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Jesus. This week, Jesus and his disciples come down from the Mount of Transfigurations to a bit of a scene, a bit of a situation, a hullabaloo, if you will, a ruckus of some sort. And in the middle of it all, there's a sick boy and a desperate father. Look at, again, with me, Matthew 17. Look at verse 14. It says, When they came to the crowd, a man came to him, kneeling before him, said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Parents, perhaps you can relate to the situation, right? The the context of what's going on. Maybe you've had a, a relatively nice day at work. Maybe you're coming from a nice lunch with friends or whatever that is, and and you're in a good place, and you get home, and you already kind of hear what's going on on the other side of the door, and suddenly you walk in, and everything's in complete chaos. The house is trashed. The babysitter is crying for mercy, and all of that goodness seems to be completely gone, 
just washing wet. It's kind of, to me, that's what I feel like with Jesus and his disciples. Coming down from this glorious moment up on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Just the three of the, Jesus and his three inner circle just talking about how awesome that was. You know, we saw, we saw Moses, we saw Elijah, we saw your glory. It was just so amazing. And then they get down there and the other nine disciples are just in the middle of this crowd and there's yelling and screaming. The Pharisees in Mark's account tell us the Pharisees showed up, so they're in the mix, pushing and shoving, name-calling probably, right? The Father sees Jesus, makes a beeline for Jesus, breaking away from the crowd. He falls down on his knees before Jesus, and he literally says, have mercy. He says, mercy, my son, please. He has seizures so bad that often he convulses, and, and often he's thrown into the fire, where he could be burned, or sometimes he's, he's thrown into the water where he could drown, and, and he can't control himself. ESV says that the child is epileptic. If you're rolling King James this morning, you're looking at the word lunatic, which is literally what it says in the Greek, meaning an illness that perhaps is somehow caused by the moon phases in some way. We are going to learn that Jesus himself says that this is the work of of an evil spirit. The man also then turns around, tattles on his disciples. Yeah, well, okay, Jesus, I took it to those guys and they couldn't heal him. Imagine that. Them trying, oh, come on, man, really? Like, we just got it. You're going to tell on us right away? Their ego's bruised. But let's look at this for a moment. Why could they not heal the boy? Shouldn't they have been able to do that? The short answer is yes, and let's look at why. Jesus had given them power and authority to do so. If we jump back to Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 1, we can see that he has clearly given them authority and to do that. He says he called to him his 12 disciples and, watch this, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. We have Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, uh, Philip, Bartholomew, he goes on to name them. Look at verse 5. Then Jesus, the, the 12, then Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here it is again. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons. You received without paying, give without pay. He has commissioned them. He has given them authority and the ability to do these things. Twice, he says it in a few chapters ago in Matthew 10. So what is the deal? Why can't they do this? There must, there must be something in the way that they are doing this that they are not being effective and they're not able to do it. Again, in verse 1 of chapter 10, Jesus gave them the authority. And I think there's our key word. He gave them authority to do it. Meaning, if you do those things in my name and the way that I would have you do them, they're going to be done. It's not like the name of Jesus, the authority of Jesus, needs any help. If they do it in the authority of Jesus as he has given them, it is going to work. So if they weren't using his authority, whose authority were they using to try and cast out this demon? I think the answer is themselves. I think they tried to do it on their own. It seems that they're trying to do the work of Jesus in their own strength, by their own authority. They aren't trusting in the authority of Jesus. Maybe they got a little bit ahead of themselves. Maybe got a little bit too big for their britches, so to speak. 
And they, they swaggered into this place and they said, we can take care of this, no problem. And it didn't work. Why didn't it work? Whose authority were they doing? They were, who's, who's faith, where was their faith? Were they putting it in the, the, the authority of Jesus Christ or were they putting it in themselves? I think they were misplacing their faith. So I'll say it this way. A misplaced faith is an ineffective faith. A misplaced faith is an ineffective faith. The disciples should be able to do this, but they can't because they are misplacing their faith. They are not trusting in the authority of Jesus, but in their own abilities. Otherwise, if they were properly using it, one demon is not any match for the name of Jesus. There aren't any other choices. Either they're using the authority of God or they're using the authority of themselves. Think of the dynamics of the pressure of this situation. Peter, James, and John may be still a little bit shocked from everything they experienced on the mountain. Again, we have the tension of the Pharisees, as Mark tells us, getting in their faces, crowd pressing in on them. If you were tracking last week, where we were talking about the different mountains and where this could be, this is a good evidence that maybe they were closer to Mount Tabor. Maybe they were in Galilee, because now they seem to be back in, in Jewish territory again, if the scribes and the Pharisees are there. And all in the middle of everything, what? A desperate father, carrying probably a sick boy. For some of us, this sounds like a typical Tuesday, right? Life has a way of closing in around us, subtly adding pressure, some days not so subtly. And in those moments of ruckus and crisis, where are you placing your faith? In your own abilities just to hang on and get through the day or in the person and the work of Jesus Christ? And watch this, how that informs your identity and how that informs your reactions to the crisis that's going on. Many of us have this passage memorized, but it's so appropriate here. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about in those moments, especially of crisis, in those moments where, where we, we, we need to have faith in something, don't misplace your faith. Don't put it in yourself. In all your ways, acknowledge him. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding, and then he will work. The disciples do not seem to be trusting in the Lord with all their heart. Otherwise, this crisis probably wouldn't be happening. And so again, I ask, where are you placing your trust, particularly in those moments of crisis? The American air that we breathe says what? It's up to you. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Be confident in who you are. Be assertive in who you are, right? Have confidence in yourself to just do it. That is the air that we breathe. Be sure of who you are, no matter who that is. Church, listen. The Christian faith is not thinking yourself to be nothing, but Christ to be everything. It's not thinking yourself to be nothing, but it's thinking Christ to be everything. In those moments, we need to make sure our faith is placed in nothing else but Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We think to ourselves, I can't get through this week at school. I can't get through this conflict with my friends or my parents or my children. I can't see my way through this financial crisis, this marriage crisis, this work crisis, this health crisis. I can't continue to care for my elderly parents. You're right. <laughs> you can't. You can't. 
by leaning on your own understanding, but you can by trusting fully in God and letting Him inform that situation. Or rather, He can transform that situation through you. Remember, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Right? We remember that. We are called to do them in, though, a very specific way that honors and glorifies God, which the disciples, again, must not be doing. We have further evidence here, by the way, Jesus responds to them. Look at 17, verse 17, back in Matthew 17. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Again, kind of one of those moments where it's like you have the master who's there. He's watching the, the students. They're just struggling to do something. They're not doing it. They're making a bigger mess out of things. And then the master shows up and it's just like, give it to me. Give it to me. Just give it to me. Give it to me. And does it instantly. But before the healing, he rebukes them. He says, oh, faithless and twisted generation. How much longer am I going to bear with you guys? How long do I have to put up with you? All three gospel accounts include this rebuke. Mark leaves out the twisted part, but if we're thinking about twisted, maybe it's because people just don't understand who Jesus is. Maybe they twist his identity or twist his purpose. They misunderstand it in their minds, right? But Jesus is frustrated. Jesus is frustrated with their lack of faith and this whole incident, especially so from his own disciples. Commentator R.T. France puts it this way, Jesus has accepted that he'll be rejected by the official leadership of Israel. But to find himself let down by even his own disciples evokes a rare moment of human emotion on the part of the Son of God. He's been disappointed by his own disciples. He's, he says, I, I agree with Francis, I, I expect that from everybody else, not you guys. Where, where is your, what are you doing? Who are you trusting in here? What, what's happening? Right? Again, this, this rebuke is pointed primarily at the disciples. Right? It's certainly not pointed at the father of the boy. The disciples also, as a representative of anyone who would then have a twisted or faithless understanding of who Jesus is. It's a rare moment of Jesus' humanity that breaks through here in his frustration. Nevertheless, Jesus doesn't let his frustration get in the way of his compassion for those in need. Jesus asks for the boy to be brought to him. He heals him instantly. There's no waiting, there's no delay, there's nothing. He just heals him and the boy is fine. Jesus attributes the sickness to a demon. He rebukes the demon, immediately comes out of him, and the boy is fine. We've got to just clear up a couple things here. We have to say that there's no possible way. We can't always say that there is a demon behind every sickness. Right? We can't draw that line at all times. There's not a direct correlation. There's not a cancer demon. There's not a COVID demon, although maybe we could talk about that a little bit. <laughs> Rather, the biblical worldview says that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. He says it right in 1 John 5, 19. We know that we're from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay, great. That doesn't make me feel so good. But we have to balance that with the authority, and the, the authority of Jesus Christ who is king of kings and lord of lords, right? 
That authority that evil has or whatever control that evil has in the world is a limited control or limited authority held back by the gracious hand of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.21 tells us that he's been declared king of kings and sat on the throne far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Church, be reminded that although evil is alive and well in the world, Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. He is king of kings and he is lord of lords right now. Any authority that any any realm that 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 Satan has, he's this is the stuff that makes our head hurt, right? He's given him limited reign in the world. And the key word is limited, because he is a dog on a leash. Even Luther put it this way: even the devil is God's devil. He's doing the things that God has allowed him to do. And, and don't also don't also forget, in his gracious hand, he is holding back. So much more evil. So much more destruction. Remember the graciousness of our God. When he, when he allows whatever evil to happen, when he allows this to happen, watch, there's redemption from it. Might not even be in this life, but there's redemption from it. It's not just senseless evil. It should be obvious to all that God in his sovereign wisdom has left evil in this world for the time being until he returns. Evil has limited power, and the power of evil is sin. Satan and his minions then capitalize on the presence of sin, right? We can't draw a direct line, right? There's another, another episode in the Gospels where the disciples ask Jesus who sinned for this guy to be blind, right? Him or his parents or whatever, and Jesus says, no, that's not the way it works, right? There's no sin necessarily that this young boy did or this father did to, to deserve what's going on here, right? But... It is because of the presence of sin that sickness exists in the first place. That's what we have to remember. Jesus is the one who sees through and says, I can just cut to the chase on this because I have authority over evil. So evil, be gone. And the boy is healed. And Jesus rebukes the demon and it runs. He also rebukes the disciples for their misplaced faith. But look at the faith of the Father here. Desperately bringing his son to Jesus. He knows he can help. He's frustrated by the disciples. And now he brings him to Jesus, and who, who he knows can help, and he knows he could heal. Mark's account tells us something so important about the faith of the Father here. And I'm going to borrow from Mark's account, reading in Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. This often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the crowd was running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to him, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And the boy was healed. I believe, help my unbelief. 
the faith of the Father, Jesus recognizes this tiny amount of weak faith that the Father has. Weak and feeble as it is, and immediately he rises to the defense of this boy and this father, and he defeats the enemy for them. You have a weak faith? Good. That is exactly where you need to be, because that means that you are fully dependent on Jesus Christ. A weak faith is a dependent faith. A weak faith is a dependent faith. Can we relate to this or what? I bet a very large number of Christians walk around every day with a burden of guilt and condemnation thinking that God is displeased with them because they just don't have enough faith. Listen, he is not disappointed in the weak faith of the Father, is he? He does immediately what the Father requests. He sees that weak faith and he honors it. He's disappointed what? In the misplaced faith of the disciples. The disciples have misplaced faith in themselves and their own abilities. The father is literally on his knees in front of Jesus, begging him like he is his last hope because he is. And he has this much faith and he's, I love that. I believe, help my unbelief. Here's my faith, Jesus. It's this big, but it's in you. And he rewards him immediately with what he asks for. Jesus sees a desperate father with a weak faith and instantly does what the disciples could not do in their misplaced faith. And Matthew, once again, masterfully weaving through the tension of this account, right? A contrast here between the misplaced faith of the disciples, right, on the one hand, and then the weak faith of the father on the other. Which gets, <clears throat> which gets rewarded? The weak faith. Why? Because a weak faith is a dependent faith. I'm totally dependent on you, Jesus. But look at the compassion of Jesus as well here. One commentator says it this way. And these two incidents recorded in 17, 1 through 20 provide a striking example to all believers. Having just had this, his glory revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus did not hesitate to then immediately become involved in our world of pain and shame as he focused on the diseased child. Glory did not distract Jesus from compassion, but watch this. Rather, compassion for the hurting became an expression of his glory. He reveals his glory again in caring for the needy and the compassion that he shows. Jesus takes a weak faith and he uses it to display his glory. Jesus glories in your weak faith, church. We think of the, the Apostle Paul who famously said in Corinthians, what, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. He's like, good, you're weak, perfect. Then I can work. Then I'll show my glory through your weak faith. And so church, your faith is weak, good. You know you need Jesus. God is not disappointed in your weak faith. It is right where you need to be because a weak faith is a dependent faith. Jesus has much more to teach us about faith here. Track, let's go back to Matthew 17 from Mark's account. We'll, we'll listen on this debrief that he has with his disciples. 17, verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. 
For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible. And first, a brief rabbit trail here, because some of you have probably, I know you guys, you're all smart, and you're all observant, like you've already noticed, hey, uh, where's verse 21? It's gone, as it goes from 20 to 22. So, so what happened? This is a brief example of textual criticism. Yes, nerd alert, it's coming. <laughs> what happened is that some scribes, when they were translating, when they were, they were copying these manuscripts, they know full well that Mark's version includes a verse that says, this kind can only come out through prayer and fasting. They know full well that that was in Mark's account. So you know what? They just decided to give Matthew's version just a little bit of help. He probably, Matthew probably left that off. So let's just write that in there for him just to make sure that it's all nice, right? And the science of textual criticism says, okay, so we have, I'm going to not use accurate numbers here, but so we have five manuscripts that have that little addition in here, but then we have 5,000 manuscripts that don't. And so you play the game of which one of these things don't look like the other, and you realize that that was probably a scribal addition. That probably really shouldn't be in there. Does that mean that Jesus didn't say it? No. He probably did say it. Mark said he said it, so he probably did say it. But the point is, Matthew's telling his own version. Let Matthew tell his own version. They don't need help, right? The other takeaway, church, is that we can trust our Bibles. We can trust our Bibles because we have thousands and thousands of manuscripts and we have really smart guys with thick eyeglasses and patches on their elbows that pour over these things and understand these things. And so we can trust our Bible. It's not a mistake. We have an embarrassing amount of riches in the thousands of manuscripts that we work through. And so we should be very, very confident in the Word of God. All right, that was for free. But <laughs> more importantly, more importantly, I, I want Highlands to be a place where we can ask these kind of questions, where we can talk about these kind of things, where we can come with our questions and our doubts and all of these things and talk about these things because the Bible is true and we can rely on the scriptures as the word of God. But in verse 19, he says, the disciples pulled Jesus into a private meeting and you gotta know these guys, their egos are kind of hurting right now, right? After the rebuke, like Jesus, boom, just heals him. Like, who knows, while they're up on the Mount of Transfiguration, how long these nine guys were bobbling around this kid, trying to make a meal, trying to, what did we do wrong? Maybe we should do it. Maybe I should stand on this foot, make it, I don't know what's going on. I'm doing something wrong. Just who knows how long that went on. And Jesus just comes and heals him, just like that. You got to know the disciples are like, oh, come on. Like, we were here for hours. And he just does it. Not only that, he yells at us in front of everybody else. He's like, they pull him aside. They're like, boss, what the heck was that? What was that? How did you do that? How come we didn't do that? What, what, what is going on? First, the old guy rats us out, and then you just go and heal the kid. And more importantly, why couldn't we do that? What were we doing wrong? And he tells them in verse 20, simply because of your little faith which is sort of misleading, and we'll see why in the next verse, because we realize that Jesus is not necessarily saying they have little faith. He's basically saying they have no faith. He's basically saying they have hardly any faith at all, maybe even no faith. It becomes clear in the next part, because he said, if you did even have faith as small as a grain of mustard seed, you'd be able to say to that mountain, 
get up and move to another place. You guys don't even have that little faith. How big is a mustard seed? It's pretty tiny. Here's a picture of a mustard seed next to a penny. That's what we're dealing with here. He says, if you, had, if you even had faith that big, you'd be able to move that mountain. You know, it's, okay, so it's, it's Greek and Jewish metaphors for do the impossible, right? The faith that moves mountains, right? That's, that's what we're talking about here. A pretty small seed, but we know this small seed produces a huge yield for its size. Jesus famously compared what? The kingdom of God to a mustard seed, right? Which starts out small, but then grows and grows and grows and takes over the whole world, right? Here's the point. A small faith is a powerful faith. A small faith is a powerful faith. Again, you have small faith, good. You can move mountains. Nothing will be impossible for you. Here's the myth, though. When we think of somebody who has the ability, faith to move mountains, you say, that person is a person of great faith. We automatically think that means they have a high level of faith. We have someone who has faith that moves mountains, or moves mountains, rather, is someone who has a great amount of faith. Not so. Not what Jesus says here at all, is it? He says, this amount of faith. This amount of faith. Someone who has great faith doesn't mean they have a lot of faith. They might have weak faith the size of a mustard seed, but it needs to be placed in the right place object the disciples don't even have mustard seed faith jesus corrects them he says if you did if you did have faith that small you could do anything the faith that moves mountains church is not a large faith the faith that moves mountains jesus is saying is a very small faith because a small faith is powerful and this is what false teachers get wrong all day every day right they say what you just have to have enough faith if you have enough faith then you will unlock whatever power that you need Jesus to do in your life, whatever healing, whatever job promotion, whatever, whatever. You just need to have that level of faith. Terrible things have been said to chronically ill people in this church by well-meaning people who would say, well, you just don't have enough faith. That's why you're in a wheelchair. It's like, what are you talking about? That's not what the Bible says at all. Jesus says, if you have faith the size of a seed... You could move a mountain. It's not the level of faith that we're talking about here. Jesus said, if you had tiny faith, you could do the impossible. Now, this also requires a little bit of pastoral reining in here, right? This doesn't mean that we can wield our little tiny faith, right? And then just walk around getting whatever we want. It's just like, well, if I just have faith, then, then the, world, the possibilities are endless, I can finally get that job. I can finally have that money. I can't. It's not a blank check that we have, right? Similar to when Jesus says, if you ask for anything in my name, you already have it, right? That's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about just an endless possibility of stuff that we can use for our own glory. Bring it back to we're doing the will of God. That's what the disciples are supposed to be doing here. The will of God and the proclamation of the gospel. But it's not what the world says, and it's not what the false teachers say. You want that promotion? Have faith. You want your business to grow more profit? Have faith. You want more joy, peace, and whatever? Have more faith. False. The disciples are trying to do the will of God here, and a small faith is a powerful faith, not for the glory of us, but for the glory of God. 
It's God's will, not our will. It's God's glory, not our glory. The whole object of this is God. The object of the mission is God's glory. It was painfully clear last week in the Mount of Transfiguration. And therefore, the object of our faith then has to be none other than God. The disciples misplaced faith in themselves. The Father, weak, desperate faith. Jesus tells them if their faith was as small as a mustard seed, then you could do the impossible. But the faith requires an object, not a level. It requires an object. And so I'll say it this way. The object of our faith is more important than the level of our faith. The object of our faith is more important than the level of faith. You say you don't have enough faith. There's no magic level of faith that you need to get to in order to unlock the blessings of God in your life, right? I hope that's clear from this passage. But are there levels of faith? Sure. Do some of us need to have more faith? Yes. But that is not the way to manipulate God, right? To get what we want. We can have great faith in ourselves and our abilities and next to no faith in Jesus. So it needs to be flipped, right? We need to have less faith in ourselves and greater faith in Jesus. Faith requires an object and the object must be Jesus. I hear this often. I wish I had more faith. And what we're basically saying at that is, I'm basically like the disciples. I hardly have any, any faith in Jesus, and it subtly creeps in that it's all up to me. If I could just have more faith, then I could get what I want. And that's not what Jesus is saying in this passage. Flip the script. We should have the most faith in Jesus and the least faith in ourselves. We misplace faith all the time. We place it in ourselves, our abilities, or then on the other end of the spectrum, right, maybe we just completely doubt ourselves and have no idea of what we're able to do. Church, be dependent on Jesus. You have weak faith, good. That means you're dependent on Jesus. That's where you need to be. You have small faith, good. Jesus says that's enough to uproot a mountain. But the object of our faith must be Jesus. And what does that mean? How do we do this? this is, these are great questions for care groups, for discussions over cup, coffee, but I just want to give you three little points of application here of how we place our faith in Jesus. And I'll simply say time, obedience, and trust. First time, someone who is showing dependence on Jesus is someone who spends a lot of time with Jesus. Time in prayer. Prayer is the language of faith. Prayer is the language of dependence. How much are you praying? That shows how dependent you are on Jesus. That shows your level of faith in Jesus. How much time are you spending in reading, meditating, the spiritual disciplines, fasting, journaling, service, worship? We show the object of our faith by how much time we spend with it. Second, obedience. What we place our faith in, we obey. Jesus says many times, if you love me, you will obey me. We show the object of our faith is Jesus when what? We obey Jesus. When we obey what he tells us to do. When we deny ourselves, take up our cross, when we follow him. When we grow and change degree by degree more into the image of Jesus Christ, that shows that we are dependent on Jesus Christ with our faith. And third, we show Jesus, show Jesus is the object of our faith when we trust him. This is settled faith. This is the words we don't like very much. This is wait on the Lord. This is, Lord, get me through this phase of parenting 
And Jesus says, wait on me. Trust in me. I'm at work. Lord, get me through the season of caring for my elderly parents. And Jesus says, wait on me. Trust in me. I'm at work. Lord, send me a spouse. And Jesus says, wait on me. Trust in me. I'm at work. Lord, get me through this season of school, this season of work. I feel overwhelmed or lost and drifting. And Jesus says, wait on me. Trust in me. I'm at work. That's the object of our faith, church. We show it through time, through obedience, and through trust. And so often we can be like the disciples running off to try and fix our own situations, can't we? I know exactly what I need to do. Boom, and we're off and running. And whose faith are we showing then? Faith in our own ideas. We try to make it happen for ourselves, and yet the situation, like the little boy when the disciples tried to do it, remains unchanged. The object of our faith is more important than the level of our faith. So church, together, let's ask God to help place our faith in the right object. Let's ask him to bless us in our weak faith. Let's be confident that even a small amount of weak faith placed in Jesus is powerful. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word this morning that you have given us through Matthew. We pray that the Holy Spirit does all that you have set aside for this word, whether it be encouraging, whether it be confronting, Maybe some of us do need to be confronted with those hard words like Jesus rebuked the disciples with. Maybe some of us need to be encouraged in our weak faith. Maybe some of us need to realize that it's not the amount of faith, that we stop striving and trying to conjure up faith within ourselves, that we realize that faith is a gift that comes from the loving hand of our Father. May we spend more time at His feet. May you supply us the level of faith that we need in order to do the work that you have called us to, in order to glorify you in all of those situations that are trials and struggles. And we pray all of this for your glory. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.